0: Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, want to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We're looking at verses 18 through 22 this morning. I've been looking forward to preaching this message now for about four months. I love this passage. As you turn now, let's just pray. Lord, we we thank you for Larry. We thank you for Jeff and Mooie. Lord, we thank you that your, your gospel is bearing fruit like it always has. Thank you, God, that your, your gospel is not limited to Northwest Indiana or to America. God, but it is blowing the doors off every nation. Lord, thank you that your spirit is at work bringing people to yourself. Thank you, God, that as we sit before your word this morning, we have faith knowing that you continue to speak to us yet, that you are continuing to reveal Jesus Christ to us. Thank you, Lord, that we have hope. Hope, Lord Jesus, that you are, you are speaking, you are drawing, you are revealing. So, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Soften our hearts to receive your truth. We ask for the gift of faith and repentance. Help us, Lord Jesus, to know you, to see you, to enjoy you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Locked up and serving a life sentence, the Prince of Granada found himself in solitary confinement. Imprisoned by order of the Spanish crown in Madrid's ancient dungeon, the Place of Skulls. As an heir to the Spanish throne, the fear was that he might aspire to be king. So he sat alone, locked up for 33 years, with all but the most minimal human contact. In an act of cynical kindness, his captors gave him one book to read in a cell, one book with which he'd be locked away in isolation with for the whole of his imprisonment. That book was the Bible. We know that the prince of Granada studied the Bible meticulously during his years in jail because he had a nail in which he scratched notes on the soft s- stones in a cell. What, were re- what was remarkable were the kind of notes he made. Here he possessed the zenith The pinnacle of all written documents came up, and he came up with notes like these. In the Bible, the word Lord is found 1,583 times. The word Jehovah, 6,855 times. And the word Reverend, but once. And that in the ninth verse of the 11th Psalm. The 8th verse of the 118th Psalm is the middle verse of the Bible. The ninth verse of the 8th chapter of Esther is the longest verse, and the 35th verse of the 11th chapter of John is the shortest. Each verse of the 136th psalm ends alike. No word or name, more than six syllables, can be found in the Bible. There are found in both books of the Bible 3,538,483 letters. There are 773,693 words. There are 31,373 verses. 1,189 chapters and 66 books. With such prolonged and intense exposure to God's word, he came up with little more than trivia questions. There is a difference between knowing about something or someone and actually knowing it. We see this all the time in the, in the TV world where there's the, the movie stars and there's TV shows. Who are they dating? Where are they going? And people know all about their favorite star. but well, they really don't know this person. They know about them. They know who they're dating. They know who they've broken up with. They know what movie they're going to be in next, They know the trouble they had on the, the movie set, but they don't know that person. And there's a difference between knowing about someone or something and actually knowing them. Now, in the context of this passage, we see that, that Jesus sends out the 12 in the beginning of chapter 9 on a missionary journey representing himself, and they go forth, and they begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, they begin to heal the sick, and they come back. And in the middle of all of this, we see that Herod, pagan ruler, is asking questions about who Jesus is. Then we turn over to his disciples, who when they do return, Jesus kind of pulls away with his disciples for a little r and little time to reflect and see what's happened. And in the midst of that, 5,000 men plus women and children show up. And Jesus welcomes them. In the middle of that, everyone gets hungry at the same time, and they have the, most, the world's most famous picnic ever. Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women plus children, which could have been up to about 20,000 people fed that day with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Now we read Jesus right after this, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus is always praying before major moments in his ministry. And so we see, even at his baptism, before he starts his public ministry, we find Jesus praying. Before he chooses the first disciples, Jesus is praying. Before he chooses the 12 disciples, Jesus is praying. Before he feeds 5,000 people, Jesus is praying. I think about us having this week of prayer and fast, and we don't just do this once a year for a week. This is a lifestyle for us, but it's a time when we as a church come together and recognize our need for Jesus. We need the Lord. We need him in our lives, we need him in our church, we need him in our families, we need him in our communities. So we seek the face of the Lord. And here we see Jesus doing this. Now he's praying before he asks them these important questions. Who do the crowds say that I am? People have been asking this question for nine chapters in Luke's gospel. So we see the religious leaders, when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic, and they say, who is this guy? Jesus forgives the sins of the the sinful woman when Jesus is at the party. They're asking, who is this guy? The disciples, when they're on the boat and Jesus stills the storm with just a word, the disciples ask this very question, who is this? We read Herod, even pagan rulers, are asking this very question, who is this? And now Jesus is even asking the question himself, who do people say that I am? It is the question that everyone has been asking. It is the question that that we have been seeing Jesus being revealed to us to come to this point. Finally, we get an answer. Luke 9, 19, and they answered. This is what the people have been saying about Jesus. They said, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. And so here's the conclusion that they're giving Jesus. Here's what everyone is saying about you. And this is identical to what, what Herod had heard as well back in verses 7 and 8. And their conclusion is this: basically, summing up, Jesus is little more than a powerful prophet. This is what everyone's, this is the consensus out there. This is what everyone is saying about you. You're a prophet. You're a prophet. You're bring the word of the Lord to people, you're powerful in indeed. But that's all that you are. You're just a prophet. Verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? This, is, this you is an emphatic you. This is, but who do you, who do you say that I am? I know what everyone else is saying about me. I know what people are we're, we're talking I know that there's, there's rulers and there's religious leaders and even, even the own disciples are asking this question. I know what everyone else is saying, but what do you think? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. This is the all-important question. But who do you say that I am? And it brings me back to a conversation I had with a Jehovah's Witness one afternoon while my car was being worked on. And as we, we begin to dis- talk and discuss and he began to present his understanding of, of the Bible and what it means to be a Jehovah's Witness and he was telling me, you know what, we're not that far apart. You know, do you believe that parents sh- or that children should honor and obey their parents? And Yes, Absolutely. Do you believe that there's a a moral decay that that God needs to needs to to work into our our nation and absolutely these things that we agreed upon. We agreed in general about some things. And he kind of sat back and was like, see, we're not that different. You and I were pretty much the same here. And then I said, but let's ask one important question. It's who is Jesus? And that's, that's, that's the linchpin. That's, that's the crux of everything. Who is Jesus? See, this question then defines what all, what all of life means, what all of this means. It's not a list of rules that we try to follow. It's answering this question of who is Jesus? What has Jesus come to do? And so as we begin to talk about Jesus, we couldn't be farther apart. We are talking about two totally different people. His understanding was not what I believe the word of God says about Jesus. But this is the most important question. The answer to this question determines our eternal destinies. Heaven and hell hang in the balance of the answer to this question. Romans 10, 9 and 10, you don't have to turn there, but it says that the free gift of eternal life is only for those who know Jesus. It's not talking knowing some facts about Jesus, but actually knowing Jesus for ourselves. Knowing him for who he really is. And Peter opens his mouth, as we see Peter's kind of the spokesman, kind of blurts out some things sometimes that's like, okay, that was kind of off, that was kind of weird, but he says, you're the Christ of God. He nails it. It's the right answer. In Matthew, we see the same passage, but after that, Matthew includes that Jesus says to Peter, says, man, that wasn't something you got on your own. That was revealed to you by God himself. God revealed that to you. This is a revelation from Almighty God that you understood this. Now, you don't completely understand this, but you've, but you've, you've given the right answer. And for us, it's not just deductive reasoning that brings us to the Lord. It's not just our, our intelligence, our, how well we are able to understand scriptures, now we, can, now we come to the Lord for salvation. It is a work of the Spirit of God in our lives, and in our hearts, that reveals Jesus Christ to us. Sure, we, we search the scriptures, the scriptures reveal Jesus to us, but ultimately it is the Spirit of God, it is the Word of God that reveals Jesus to us in a way that we understand and come to him, not just as a person, but as the Messiah, as the Savior. It is the Spirit of God going before us, living and dwelling in our hearts that is bringing God's word to life to get us understanding who Christ is. Just like the prince, we could study these scriptures for the rest of our lives, for the next 33 years, combing the verses and the letters of this book. And still come up with little more than trivia questions. But it is the Spirit of God that takes these words and brings them to life in our hearts. Nobody comes to faith apart from God's Holy Spirit actively bringing his word and his life, breathing that into us, drawing us to himself. It is the Spirit of God that is at work. Now, Peter talks that Jesus is the Christ of God. Why was this significant? Christ was not Jesus' last name. It's not as if it was Joseph and Mary Christ and they had a son, Jesus, now it's Jesus Christ. Christ was a title of honor. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah. The Christ or Messiah literally means anointed one. One chosen by God and consecrated for a sacred office. So it's helpful to get a little Old Testament background to this. And so we see in the Old Testament that prophets, priests, and kings were anointed and set apart for the holy work of, of the Lord. And so we see Aaron, the high priest, Moses anointing Aaron with oil. God commanding Moses to anoint Aaron with oil to be consecrated, to be set apart as high priest. We see prophets also doing this. Where um, Isaiah says in one one. That the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. a prophet was anointed by God for a purpose. But most all, most of all, we see kings. Kings were anointed for office as well. So David is anointed by Samuel, Solomon is anointed by Zadok, the priest, Elisha anointed Jehu, and so they would anoint these kings for office, and when they were anointed, they became the anointed ones, or Messiah. Many were anointed. But one day there would be the anointed, the one. And we see this all the way going back to Genesis 3. If you're in the Bible reading plan, you read about this this week. Genesis 3, I encourage you, it's not too late to get on the Bible reading plan. We have some back at the coffee area, but Genesis 3, it says, one day the seed of the woman, after Adam and Eve had fallen, rebelled against the Lord, God comes and says, one day, the seed of the woman, that person's heel would be struck by Satan, but they would crush Satan's head, deliver a final death blow to Satan. He would crush the head of the serpent, Satan, deliver a final death blow to the forces of evil. This wasn't just a king that would do that. It was the Messiah. It was the anointed one. In at Jesus' baptism, we see the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus as he's coming out of the water. And Jesus, is a few verses later, says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Jesus is the anointed. He is the Messiah from God. He is the Savior promised to deliver God's people from ages past. This is great news there is a party going on. I can imagine the disciples going nuts at this moment. Peter feeling like, man, I nailed that one. Man, check me out. I got that one right. I don't care about everyone else. We, we got this right. Can imagine the rest of the disciples like, wow. Man, let's, let's bring out some steak. Lord, can you multiply that like 12 times and we'll just we'll have a good party here. And man, everything's good. You're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. And we're with the Messiah. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah and he's here in our midst. Verse 21. Party going on, disciples high-fiving, chest bumping. They're just I mean, everything's going on. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Party over. Party's over. Put the stake away. You guys settle down. Party's over. What's this all about? Why would Jesus say that? Why, in the midst of this this high revelation of who Jesus Christ is, I know what everyone else is saying. What do you say? You're the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. Jesus says, Yes. Now don't tell anybody. most of the people at that time were expecting some kind of political Messiah, some kind of political deliverer, some kind of leader that would set up the dominance of Jerusalem all over the world. At the time, Israel was being occupied by a pagan Roman government being ruled over by them, and they thought this is a great opportunity for this Messiah to show up to kick Rome's butt out and set up our dominance that we would one day rule over the earth under God's law. But is this what Jesus came to do? Even think think to after Jesus' death and resurrection in Acts 1 verse 6. It's after Jesus has has died just like he said he would. He rose again just like he said he would. The disciples are all together. Jesus is is getting ready to, to leave And the disciples, what do they ask him? Are you going to set up the kingdom of Israel at this point? They want to know if Jesus is going to bring the reign of Israel in this moment. They had missed it, even after the fact. Even after all these things happened, they were still a little bit confused about what was going on. Not quite sure. They didn't quite get it. Verse 22 the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is saying, this is who I am and this is what I've come to do. And it is so difficult to reconcile divinity with suffering. It's so hard to reconcile that the king of the universe would come and suffer and die on a cross. It just doesn't make sense. It is almost too hard to understand. He said, this is what I've come to do. You don't fully get it. And because of that, I want you to, I want you to get it before you go out and start proclaiming this to everybody. I'm not here to overthrow a government I'm not here to set up my, my political office. I'm not here to, to kick Rome's butt and establish Jerusalem rule. His true death and resurrection would have been a shock to the disciples. It was a shock. You think when, when Jesus was, was, was captured the night, before he was, the night before he was crucified, what happens? All his disciples scatter. They all leave. They they they're getting out of there. They don't they don't get this quite yet. How could it be that Jesus is saying the religious leaders? We look back and see the Pharisees as we know these guys were religious and they were bad and they didn't help the people. But at the time, people didn't look at the religious leaders thinking they're all bunch of bunch of bad people. I thought these people really know God. These Pharisees really are close to the Lord. They know what they're talking about. They've studied the scriptures. How can it be that our religious leaders are the very ones to reject the Messiah? The ones who are close to God, how can it be that they're the ones who are gonna reject God himself? It just doesn't make sense. It's too much. It's too much for us to understand. But this is what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to suffer And die for our sins. He came and he suffered and he died for our sins, for my sins. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was punished so that I could go free. So that I could receive forgiveness. So that I could receive mercy. So I could receive all the blessings of his obedience. Jesus' rejection, his suffering. His, ultimately his crucifixion, this never took Christ by surprise. This was the plan all along. That's almost too much for us to understand. We sing a song, Amazing Love, and in it we ask a question, how can it be that my king would die for me? How can it be that the Savior, the Messiah, the Chosen One of God, God himself in the flesh would come and suffer and die for my sins, that I would be forgiven, that he would be punished on my behalf, that I could go free, that I could receive all the blessings of his obedience. How can that be? It's almost too much for us. This is the good news, that we have a Messiah in Jesus Christ the Savior of the world. I want to encourage you to this morning, if you have not personally, not just know about Jesus, been to church sometimes, read about Jesus, but know him personally as your Savior. I want to encourage you this morning to put your faith to believe that Jesus Christ has come and died for your sins. Turn from your sins and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to do that this morning. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to encounter Jesus in a real and living way. But as believers, I want to also encourage us that when we read about Jesus Christ and what he has come to do, that we can add nothing to this. His suffering and death was complete and total payment for all of our sins. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and think, you know what? I had a quiet time yesterday, I spent some good time in prayer. I did all the right things I was supposed to do. Therefore, today is going to be a good day. God is happy. God is pleased. God is going to bless me. That's not the reason God blesses us. Because we've read our Bible the day before. It's a good thing. We encourage reading God's word. But the reason that we receive God's blessing and his mercy and his grace is because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because we receive all the blessings of Jesus Christ's obedience, we receive that from him. That is why we are blessed. That is why we we have hope to come to church week after week. That is why we can take communion week after week knowing that God continues to invite us back to the table again because of what Jesus Christ has done because of his work on the cross on our behalf, because he suffered and died so that we would not have to. And each day we can rest and trust in his love and forgiveness and mercy, of which we did not earn, of which we are given by God because of Jesus Christ. I want us to encourage us this morning, as we close in prayer, if you have not given your life to Christ, If you've not trusted Him for your salvation, asking the forgiveness of your sins, that this morning can be that morning. That today you can go home knowing Jesus, not knowing about Jesus, but knowing His forgiveness. For us who've done that already, let us go forth today in hope. Faith. Knowing that our sins have been paid for. Knowing that we have forgiveness. Knowing that we have mercy, that every morning His mercies are Jesus we thank you that you are the hope of the world God that you are the Messiah you are the Christ you are the Lord and Jesus it is a privilege to know you Jesus it is we can't say thank you enough for the gift of eternal life, for the gift of your presence, for the hope that we have in you. Jesus, we love you. Help us to respond to your word with faith, knowing that you have paid it all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.